the joke is that we shower with five people because we're thinking about what our mother-in-law meant when she said this and what what do I have to do today and when is my next meeting and blah, 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 blah. Just shower. Welcome to Happily Ever Active, where we crack the consistency code with fitness tips on motivation, mindset, and much, much more. Now, here's your host, author of Feel Like It, and the guy with the silent O, Kelly Dell. What's up, everyone? Welcome to an interview edition of Happily Ever Active, where I talk about the mental side of active living every week. I hope you've had a good week, all things considered. We're continuing to adjust to the routine change imposed by COVID-19, right? There's lots of restrictions still, and some of these restrictions are starting to lift in certain places. But there's a long way to go, and it's nice to see, at least here in the National Capital Region, that with the nicer weather, some public spaces like parks are starting to allow activity now, although it's still quite limited. And the outdoors has so many health-inducing effects, so that's a positive. And it's even more of a positive if you combine physical activity outside in, in nature if you can get it. And this is a nice segue to my guest this week. My guest is the CEO and founder of ConsciousWorks. It's a consulting firm that helps everyone from executives to entrepreneurs apply the findings from leading edge scientific analyses to maximize their mental and physical well-being at work and at home. She's a certified exercise physiologist, researcher, and instructor at the University of Calgary and at the University of Alberta's Executive Education Division. Her name is Dr. Lisa Belanger, and Lisa is the author of Inspire Me Well, Finding Motivation to Take Control of Your Health, and you'll also hear about her second book, which is out this week, called A Cup of Mindfulness for the Busy and Restless. And finally, Lisa's also the founder of Knight's Cabin, that's Knight's with a K. It's a national charity offering wellness programming to cancer survivors. So she's into a lot of things, a lot of fascinating things. We talked about a lot, so without further delay, have a listen to our conversation. Good morning, Lisa. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you along, and I know it's super early out west. You are in Canmore, Alberta, and which is one of the most beautiful parts of Canada, if you ask me. And I want to ask you right off the bat because, you know, context matters. And right now we are, um, a lot of us are affected by COVID-19. And I know that you are a prolific traveler. You are a busy person. How has the lockdown and the associated restrictions affected your life recently? So dramatically, as it has most people, a lot of what I do is keynote speaking, and that involves an immense amount of traveling. So I was just coming off maternity leave and hitting the ground running with a full schedule of speaking across uh, North America and other parts of the world. And of course, that was wiped clean. But on a positive note, it also meant that I could spend a little bit more time with my family. So trying to look at the positives and everything here. And, you know, this uh, uh, reallocation of time and uh, uh, opportunity, what other things have you been up to as an attempt to take advantage of more time at home? Uh, Things I've really been focusing on, I think a lot of us are going through this, where there's a magnifying glass on our habits and on these little rituals we do every day to to keep healthy, um, to spend time with loved ones, to connect 
uh, and then our own work habits. And as I mentioned, uh, a lot of my income came from speaking, but now we've really pivoted the business online, which opens up a whole new opportunity. And of course, I've been in the process of launching a book, and that is not something I thought I'd be doing in a pandemic, but trying to have some creative fun with it. Oh man, uh, not that wasn't really in the launch plan, was it? To to uh, to account for everybody being on lockdown and trying to get a book out there and uh, getting you know getting some. Uh, some buzz around it. So what sort of things have you had to face and, and how, how have you tried to adapt given the current conditions in that, in that manner? So it's, it's really interesting because it was not a, the book was not written uh, knowing there'd be a pandemic. It was written pre pandemic and the message uh, resonates a little bit differently now when we think of the book being about small mindfulness practices. And so from a, you know, from just a logistics standpoint, really focusing on online sales, looking at what we could do to be a little creative around the launch itself, because typically I would have gotten everybody together. And um, definitely, when we talking about the book, it almost always now comes back to COVID-19. How is this impactful now? What's different now? Uh, and how can people be utilizing this time to kind of sink their teeth into some new habits? And I want to talk a little bit about the the launch in the book in in, a, in more depth and in, um, in a moment. And I want to talk first off. You know, I'm a parent. I'm uh, also an author. I'm trying to balance all of these things. And and uh, I know you're you're uh, also not only your prolific traveler, you're prolific writer. You're extremely hardworking in that regard. Um, and you know, books and, and authorship is a big part of your life. But I want to kind of dig in a little bit into kind of your, your family life, just a little, but what are your kids reading these days? I mean, I, I find we have a stack of books that we're mowing through and it seems like we're reading more and more to, uh, to our daughter. What are your kids into? Uh, my son is into everything. He just wants to learn. So it's uh, everything from being able to name every type of moving vehicle. If it has wheels, he can name what it is. Uh, and he loves stories about things that move everything from locomotives to um, different types of trucks. And, you know, uh, he's three. So this is very exciting. I know I'm learning. And then, yeah, he will literally pick up and look through pictures, starting to grasp some words. So that's really exciting. My six-month-old is pretty keen on whatever I read her. You know, <laughs> she doesn't have a strong opinion on much of anything. Yeah, I remember uh, in the six-month-old stage, uh, it's like, you know, reading, you know, all the science uh, says just reading period at that age is a positive and uh, creating a strong relationship with with books. And it's a great time for bonding. So, uh, you know, you could be reading a cookbook, you could be reading, you know, uh, Sports Illustrated, whatever. It's that whole bonding, that whole experience and interaction with the book that's really the most important at this point. And the interests, I guess, come out out, out of that. And, and I got to say, for your from your son's perspective, I don't know if that ever ends. If you know the <laughs> infatuation with uh, trucks ends, whether you're three or thirty three. So, um, now, what about you? What about you as a uh, as a younger person, someone who is, um, like I said, a a, a big time uh, a, a writer? What were you interested in as a kid? What did what kind of content were you into as a kid? Animals, everything to do with animals, and it's interesting because I mean it wasn't my um, my pursuit 
for my career. However, um, just walking around Canmore, I'm still able to name tracks and figure out what animal is. And this is from like seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Um, so it's it's kind of a cool thing that comes out when you you know you take advantage of those early years to try to soak in that information. And it's amazing how it comes out. I went on a run this morning just before our uh, interview and uh, a, uh, I'm not even joking about this. A deer cut me off on my run and <laughs> I, I was, I guess I spooked it, but it uh, cut me off. Is, is, are you in elk country by chance? Is Canmore? <laughs> what what, what oh, sort yes. of wildlife is in, in Canmore? We have deer, elk that we, I see daily. Um, bears are much more rare. Not, they're just waking up at this time of year. Um, but there's, oh my goodness, there's coyotes. There's um, obviously like things, smaller squirrels and so many bunnies around town for some reason. <laughs> uh, but there's, uh, yeah, and the, the thing about being an early riser is uh, often you can make their acquaintance yeah, no doubt. And they're they're kind of at ease early in the morning because they know that there's just not a lot of buzz going on. So they're they're more at ease. I find that a, a, a you know, it's a it's a very relaxing. And we're gonna tie this in all into I think parts of your of your uh, book that's coming out too. But it's a great time to kind of uh, feel at peace and relaxation through through nature. And, um, you know, but going back to you know your author story, your author journey. When was it, if there was a time that you kind of the writer or the author and you started percolating? Oh, that's a great question, and I don't know if I have a you know like a pinpointed moment. I remember an English teacher um, taking my stories. We had to write just write her stories. They could be true, they could be fiction, and she really wanted me to be a journalist. And really thought that that was a, a great career path for me. And arguably, it's incredibly interesting. I just was really gravitated towards the sciences. So I think it's kind of that idea of telling the story of science, right? Um, and I love that. And I love being able to uh, share stories and in, in impactful information based and rooted in science that can positively impact somebody's life. And then how did it evolve from that initial interest to, you know, your academic pursuits to what has become now, you know, your recent book on mindfulness, because your background is in exercise physiology, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I think that's actually a, a fun little analogy through life. Like I, I think back to high school or middle school, and uh, if any of those teachers um, knew that I was I pursued my PhD. I don't think they could have predicted that. I was not a terribly great student. Sitting still was not my forte. I did like I did fine in school, but I certainly wasn't that applied, dedicated student. Um, I was. I as soon as a passion struck me, though, that's when it happened. That's when I was able to really dig deep and um, you know do really well and. So uh, I was an athlete uh, growing up and I went into kinesiology and um, during my first year at university, um, my best friend passed away from cancer. When she was sick, I am a control enthusiast. I say this lovingly. I wanted to know what I could do for her. What are the things that I could do at 16 to 18 years old um, to, to positively impact her life, to put quality into that life? And I noticed just by going to walk for walks and um, going to yoga classes, it, it positively impacted her mood. She slept better. Her spirit was a little bit lifted. 
And then I started seeing through different classes I was taking the positive impact physical activity could have. And so that's where I dove into. That's what I did my PhD. I looked at behavior medicine and how exercise could impact cancer survivors um, for the quality of life and for the quantity of life. And then as I was going through my PhD, I was working a couple jobs at the time to support myself financially. And the stress level was immense. As I mentioned, I'm a control enthusiast. I'm probably a type AAA personality. So I needed something to help manage that stress. And as I was going through the literature, there's so much on meditation, mindfulness for cancer survivors and how it affects everything from the health benefits to stress to even pain management. And I really struggled with the concept of sitting still for a long time. Like that just seems so beyond my capabilities. But could I sit with my cup of coffee and drink it mindfully, as in like come to my five senses, really notice where my thought patterns and my attention was going. And just these micro breaks, these micro mindfulness practices truly helped so much of what I was going through from an academic perspective, um, from a life perspective, dealing with really stressful, hard situations um, as I went through my both my career and life. So that's really kind of how it evolved and why I wrote this book. I know I'm not a meditation teacher. I still struggle with it. But the effort and the, these tiny practices where I can integrate it into my life, where I can pull my attention back um, and how I can improve my focus, I just found so powerful. And it's something I wanted to give people. Yeah, that's amazing. The, the, the background is uh, so rich and meaningful and powerful. And, and now we're here amidst this pandemic, stress is high for a lot of people, confusion, anxiety, not necessarily the most ideal time to do a book launch, but the topic is as relevant as at any other time. And the book is titled, just for for the listeners, the book is titled Cup of Mindfulness for the Busy and Restless. And I know, uh, at least personally, the restlessness to do with the lockdown is starting to take take root. And you know, you know, you, you gave some context for your ta- your interest in the topic, but was there a moment or something where you said like, or like an inspiration moment and said like, okay, I need to write something about this. I need to kind of, I need to give the reader something that's digestible. And, uh, and, and also this is a two-parter, you know, I, I see the, the, the cover of the book, which is sort of a coffee stain on a, on a, on a, I guess a coffee table or a, I guess a napkin on a coffee table and the OCD part of me is like, I want, to rub that, I want to rub that stain right off. So how does this analogy all work together, this taking time through a cup of coffee? I love that it bothers you because that's part of the process is kind of like embracing the mess, right? Yeah. And so I know through COVID for, for us here, I mean, I'm balancing a career. I run a national charity. My husband has a big career. We have two kids under the eight or like three and, and uh, six months old. And it is chaos to say the least. And the thing that's fallen, the things I had to let go, that control part of me had to say the house is not going to be clean for a little while. And I'm just going to have to be okay with that. Because it's the thing that doesn't matter. Right. I need to make sure that, you know, my company is going, my employees are set up and I need to make sure my kids are okay. And I want a relationship with my husband. Uh, We still like each other. So we're going to do that. (laughs) So like, how do you let go of these things that you try to hold on so tightly to? 
Um, and I joke around all the time. You have to be like Elsa from Frozen and just let that stuff go. Right. But what that moment was for me, I had this book in my mind for a really long time. And it's the idea is it's for people that probably need mindfulness the most, but can't find the time to integrate it into their lives. Busy professionals, career-loving parents, people that are feeling overwhelmed, which arguably is everybody right now. Um, But what actually sparked it, what ignited it, and what got me to write it is that um, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I had a very, very awful traumatic birth with my son. And the pregnancy with my daughter was um, scary to to begin with. And then uh, a bunch of medical stuff happened, and I had to be on bed rest for three months. I am the worst person to be on bed rest. Uh, I am a doer. Like I said, I just sitting still is hard, let alone being on bed rest. And all I had was my mind. That's it. And I had to figure out how to manage the fear, the uncertainty, the physical part of it all. And all I had was my mind. So as soon as she was born, I felt a thousand times better. And I sat and I wrote this book quite quickly with her laying right next to me during the whole process. It was something that I just felt like people need because it's not something you can really pick up in the awful times. I mean, you can, you can, but it's so much better if you have this practice and these skill sets, this coping mechanisms or tools before something bad happens or before something scary. And now with the pandemic, you're, you're absolutely right. We're looking forward into uncertainty. A lot of us financial uncertainty. Um, there's fear. There's a whole mess of change that our minds really don't naturally gravitate there. We like things that are controlled. So how do you use your mind and what can you kind of set yourself up for it to be agile, to be nimble, to be able to live through this somewhat successfully, right? And so that's really what the book is about is how do we manage our attention? Where are we shifting our attention? How can we consciously consume everything from social media to media to Netflix. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's, that is really where it stemmed from. And I could never have predicted we're, we'd be sitting here talking about what we are right now. Um, but I think, I do think it's more important than ever. Mm-hmm. And I think the restlessness, I mean, you, it's right in the, the title. Restlessness is some, is a feeling at least that, that most of us can relate to strongly. It's this energy that we've got that we, you know, usually place in this, this routine and and um, that you know has been heavily disrupted for a vast amount of people, and we've got this energy, and we don't really know how to reallocate it, or at least reallocate it in ways that are uh, you know that serve us positively. Now, I want to kind of transition from from that into you know you talked about how in your community being out in nature is important, but also I mean that whole act is is really tied to exercise for you. What makes exercise such a great medium to practice mindfulness and to be mindful? I remember my my dad, so I played sports and I got that like for an hour. My only goal was to get this puck into that net or 
this ball into that net, whatever it is. And I did find it really great from a coping mechanism. And I didn't know why, but it's actually quite a mindful behavior when you think about how present you need to be when you play sports, right? And my dad started running uh, half marathons. And I was fascinated by this. The idea of going out for an hour and a half and just running, what do you think about? Right? And he looks at me and he said it so clearly. And he had a uh, he's a financial analyst. He had like over 160 staff, big job. And he looks and he goes, nothing. <laughs> and I remember being like, what? How can you think about nothing for that period of time? And it's just that I've now like, I've ran, I don't know, uh, at least the 30, I think, half marathons. I've ran a marathon and it's for that reason. It to me is once you get out about five minutes after I start running, I relax and my mind relaxes. And there's so few things that can trigger that so easily. And I love it. It's become therapy, if you will, for me. And so, yeah, that's, that's a big part of it. If you, and for me, adding the element of nature is a must. And I couldn't have told you scientifically until lately why that was. It was just something I gravitated to. But so much of my research now is around how we effectively recover from stress and work. And looking at all the studies that were ever done for um, breaks during work hours, breaks all had either null or positive impact on uh, performance and mental well-being. But the overwhelmingly, the one that had positive effect on both of those across the board was any break that involves nature. It has this almost forces your brain into a mindful state just by being in nature. Then if you add the physical activity element, all those benefits, everything from, you know, stress reduction to name it, uh, amplifies that effect. So when you can combine those two, that is, that is the ideal break. That is the ideal recovery. And now we're, we're, facing, I, I know a lot of listeners out there are facing a, uh, not by choice, but a work from home lifestyle that doesn't necessarily have a clear ending. In fact, you know, there's yeah. a lot of uh, discussions about how work from home arrangements are going to be part of the norm going forward, whether we like it or not. And I know some people, and I kind of like uh, working from home. Um, I know some other people will, will say that they struggle, but now we're at a, in a situation where we're going to have, you know, be working it, we're working where we sleep and we eat. How much more important now is managing how we take breaks and detaching from work while we're in that home environment? I more so than ever, and um, again, couldn't have predicted where we were, but. Think about when you work from home, there might be a ton of distractions. There might be, I had this great video and we have French doors in my office and my son was just levitating, bouncing up and down about three feet outside my office door while I was on a phone call. Um, There's distractions, but those aren't effective recovery. And then in our day, when we're not working from home, often there's breaks integrated into our day. We might not even be conscious of them, but we're walking to the coffee shop or we're going down to visit so-and-so or we're going over here to a meeting and we're listening to music as we drive or even the commute to and from work um, can be a break. And 
when you just have to walk down the stairs into your office, they, those aren't there anymore. We have to be much more conscious of them. Then you add on the mental load of what's happening in the world and the media and social media and screen time. And it's just perpetuating this idea that our brain is not turning off that part of our brain that is active for heavy decision-making and work. When does it turn off? So you have to be conscious of integrating those breaks. And ideally you have the break before you need the break, but I mean, that's harder, easier said than done for sure. Um, but yeah, it becomes such such a more conscious behavior. And the thing that I think is so important is to create a doorstep behavior, a doorstep habit. Since we now work from home and we don't necessarily have a physical space between work and home, creating a mental one. So practicing something between you and the rest of your life. So whether that is a mindfulness practice Or for me, I actually go walk at the beginning of my day and at the end of the day, even if it's only for 10 minutes and I'm literally walking back to my home. Hmm. It just allows for that mental separation between the two. I mean, you're talking about the the transition that's built into a commute and leaving the home, then going to work uh, normally for people is, you know, it could be stressful too with the traffic, whatever, but it is, it offers a a beginning and an end to the workday where you can sort of compartmentalize your job and leave it, hopefully leave it where, leave it behind when you leave work for the day. And I kind of like the idea. I mean, I've been looking at, um, you know, just before we came on today, I went for a run, as I said, and and uh, I've started to, particularly in the last two or three weeks, look at my morning exercises, my commute. So I'll go in for a neighborhood run or a run in the woods. And that's the uh, start of my day. That's the transition from getting up, Having maybe having a cup of coffee, going for a run, coming home, um, having another cup of coffee. I mean, that's <laughs> right. And but giving that transition, getting out of the environment, and there is something to be said for just getting physically out of the space when you can. And I, I know for for millions of Canadians, and you know, it doesn't matter this these days um, worldwide. We've never spent so much time in the house. And so I, 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 I can, you know, like I was saying before, I feel that restlessness that's associated with this. So this idea of a, of a commute and combining exercise with that at the beginning and the end of the day really resonates. And so I think it's a really good tip. It, it goes a long way. Like we, the thing with the mental load we're carrying right now is many of us don't realize we're carrying it. So um, it's kind of this creeping effect of the stress that's happening all around us. So. It's really important to try to do these things habitually. Like, so every single day, and even if you're feeling well, to be able to take that time because it's, it's proactive, it's pre- preventative. And um, I've heard so much about things like the average work day in the US has increased two to three hours through COVID. And I'm sure part of that's necessity and part of it's just this awful creep within every aspect of our life, right? And so, being able to be conscious of this, aware of this, and, and be able to plan for it, because the mental health impact of all of this is going to be profound. And I know for me, I want to come out of this functioning as well as I possibly can, understanding that this is not normal. This has gone beyond what most people could have imagined. 
Um, but there will be an end and there will be, uh, you know, the next step. So how could I best prepare myself for those? Mm -hmm. I think I said this last week, uh, on my show and, uh, the idea, I mean, this is, we, you and I both are, are, we have busy households, um, balancing a lot of different things, family life, kids, dog, we do dogs, all the rest. And (laughs) there are people who, who are experiencing this much differently. The, the lockdown or the uh, distancing, the physical distancing is accompanied by like some social isolation. And, uh, you know, as you know, the you know, being isolated socially is one of the more uh, higher risk factors for cert- for mental illness and, and complications and whatnot. And, and so, you know, taking your advice um, on the commute and, and in getting in touch with nature when you can, or getting at least outside is a really important one. If, your home dynamic is one that feels super, super isolating. I mean, you and I can talk to our significant others and play with kids and dogs. And as much as that might feel overwhelming, at least we have that kind of network or support system. And I mean, yes, it has stresses unto itself, but uh, there's a lot of people who are also isolated. You know, they don't have that kind of element and, and um, it's a special challenge for them compared to some other people. I think, well, and I, I couldn't agree uh, more with this. I used to talk about the behaviors that have the highest ROI for our health as physical activity, nutrition, stress, and sleep. And then I started really diving into the literature and I realized I missed a major component. And that is that community or social connection. And so there's been two major studies done that show that the behaviors we have control over, the ones that are linked to longer life, number one, one and number two are social. Number two is how many deep relationships do you have? How many people would come visit you at the hospital if you were sick? Not like right now, but normally. And number one was how integrated you are with your community. Literally, do you know your male person? Do you know your barista? Do you know your neighbors? That is actually the strongest thing linked to long-term survival and long-term health which really defies a lot of, you know, that biomedical model that we've, we've really hung our hats on for so long. And so when that is taken away, which it has been for all of us to some extent, we need to focus on those other things that support our health and men- mental well-being, right? So to your point, if you are isolated, that's where it becomes even more important to get out into nature, to move, to practice mindfulness, to be able to eat well. Things like that become even more important and acknowledging and, and being creative on how you can connect. I had a great, uh, my neighbor's son was turning eight and we had a whole water balloon fight over the fence, <laughs> right? So like, it's really about being creative on how to connect uh, right now because I know for a lot of people, Zoom meetings and screen time is really having its toll. But yeah, I can't emphasize how important that community is. I joke around, we talk about isolation all the time. And to your point, I've never spent so much time with people in my life. Like I'm around my family 24 seven. I'm so thankful I like them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's the case too. We're finding, uh, what is, there's a joke going that divorce lawyers may not be uh, as busy now as they ever been, right? Because because so many relationships. Putting the light on a microscope. Yeah. Putting the light on a lot of things. But going back to, I just want to touch on this interesting, this exercises medicine kind of idea, which is, you know, a, a, 
it's got a lot of um, traction as a, as an idea and a, and a movement and it's evidence-based and it's correct. It's correct. But there's nuance to do with that. And I think you touched upon, it's not just exercise as medicine, but exercising in, in nature and, uh, and being socially connected to that can be even um, more powerful than just simply just moving. And although moving is, has, you know, moving more has all of these positive effects, but if you can include nature, if you include others, be uh, feel attached to a community through exercise, then you're hitting several things in one shot, aren't you? You, yeah, you're amplifying that effect, right? And so if you think of it from a stress recovery perspective, you're amplifying that. If you think of, you know, countless parts of uh, well-being, um, you're amplifying that. And if you only have a really limited amount of time to be able to do a something, why not? Why not take and make sure that it's as positive as it can be? And now I want to, you know, try to break down a little conceptually here. You know, your book is as I mentioned, cup of mindfulness. And, you know, sometimes what gets lumped in uh, together is this idea of meditation and mindfulness. These two ideas get kind of smashed together. And, you know, for people who are just kind of getting into this idea, how would you describe the kind of the difference? So if they're interested in using this time right now, to, you know, maybe they're feeling more restless and, they, and they're, they're, they're looking for some outlets or some ways to kind of address it. How could they get started? Uh, I think it's a great point. And there's a, a massive misconception there. I teach mindfulness all over the world to senior executives, to students, to, and often I don't even use the word mindfulness because there's a preconceived notion that comes with that. Uh, when I ask people what comes to mind when I say that it is yoga pants and monks, right? So there's already this idea of like, oh, that's great for other people. And so when we think of mindfulness, it is the ability to be present. So doing whatever you are intending to do. So if we use something simple like drinking coffee, if you want to experience and be present and drink that coffee, you are not writing your mental to-do list. You're not thinking about that conversation you had yesterday. You are not planning your trip, right? You are simply doing that act. And then when you notice that your thoughts are running off, you bring them back. And so the bringing them back, that's the practice of mindfulness. It's as simple as that. It's simple enough we can all do it. It's just remembering to do it and practicing it. And what it allows you to do is notice where your attention is. So we've all had those nights where we're laying up at night and we're thinking about all these things and we're worrying and that serves us not at all because we're not doing anything about them. It's not constructive and often it gets into like ruminating thoughts and just like going down this whole rabbit hole that is not useful to us. Mindfulness would give you the ability to notice you're doing it and then to bring your attention back to something that does serve you, that is helpful, or simply to concentrate on something like your breath, allowing you to fall asleep, right? So that's what I mean by, that's what anybody means by mindfulness. And that is the practice. And how can you integrate that into your day and things you're already doing? So for example, um, you're showering. Most people do this once a day, probably a little less currently, but you know, still a pretty repetitive behavior. Mm -hmm. And being able to notice the water on your back, what does it smell like? What does it feel like? What, 
you know, all the different senses around that behavior and just only showering. That sounds so simple, but so often the joke is that we shower with five people because we're thinking about what our mother-in-law meant when she said this and what, I, what do I have to do today? And when is my next meeting and blah, 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 blah. Just shower. And again, they seem so trivial, but like what people will notice now more than ever is those small, trivial, seemingly trivial habits have such a profound impact on your life. And I talk about the coffee exercise that I did every morning for almost three years. And I saw such a dramatic impact on on acute, stressful situations and how I was able to bring myself into a state of mind that I could make informed decisions, that it didn't get hyper-focused, that I was able to act in the way and make the decisions that I needed to do to get to my end goal. And so just drinking coffee was able to get me home on a horrific trip that everything went wrong, but I was able to stay calm. And so it's something that I, I again, I just wish I could like give everybody <laughs> and um, challenge people to kind of think more thoroughly through this for when you need it daily, but also for when you need it the most. And I love the association with a cup of coffee. I just, there's an elegance to it. If you think about, you know, for the, those people who drink coffee or tea on a regular basis, that's a ritual. And I mean, very few people who are coffee drinkers will ever skip their morning coffee ever. And so this is a great trigger to practice this. But also the, the act of drinking coffee creates an opportunity to, to light up the five senses, doesn't it? And it's amazing because it allows you to actually enjoy it more. And so the the book launch is going virtual and it's over a wine tasting. There's so many of us that enjoy yeah, a a glass of wine, but, you know, coming through that sensory experience of a tasting is a mindful experience and you tend to drink less, you tend to enjoy it more. And that's the same thing with coffee. And so I've taught it, I've taught mindfulness to people, you know, senior executives that are like, I've never actually tasted coffee. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And they're like, no, it's just been something that I put in a to-go mug, have on my way to wherever. And it was a ritual, but it wasn't one that they were present in. It was just kind of like, how quickly can I get this caffeine into my body? (laughs) So, um, being able to really enjoy the experience and that comes down to everything. And I think that's one of the biggest gifts that mindfulness has given me is that I'm able to be fully present with my children. So I travel extensively in the first six months of 2019, I traveled over a hundred thousand kilometers. So when I saw my son, it was a hundred percent there with him. It was really great quality time instead of half doing something else and half being with them, which a lot of us do. And I think that that's, to me, one of the great many things that mindfulness has given me is to be able to do that. And I would, you know, just to transition from from that just to exercise and fitness, I mean, there are a few other things. I mean, you could make the argument that almost anything we can do, we do, there's an opportunity to to engage our five senses more fully. But there's some things that kind of force us because they, they force us through the feedback we get from them to pay attention. And exercise is such a great um, medium 
for mindfulness, from my opinion, because, you know, there's a lot of sensation involved and you're doing it in places with different smells and, and sounds. And there's a lot of things to attend to, to get us out of our heads and into the moment, perhaps more than in, in, in any other, in, in any other thing we do. There's and, and to add to that, people who exercise mindfully that are um, drawing their attention where they need to, whether they're lifting weights or running, and um, there's a whole, uh, you know, whole science behind that. They get better workouts. They get better returns. So it's going from being kind of a passive participant in the activity you're doing to be a really active one. And ironically, an active recovery is better than a passive recovery. So if you're going to watch Netflix and you turn it on and you don't care what you're watching, you had a hard day and you're like, just whatever, and you stream a show, it has a negative effect. Uh, There's more depressive symptoms at the end of that bout of watching it. Basically, Netflix is watching you versus going and loving a show, like picking out a show, being like, I'm excited to watch this movie or show. I'm going to get some popcorn. I'm going to maybe grab some people from my family to watch it, what have you, and becoming an active participant, that did not have detrimental effects. It was actually a recovery activity. So the intention you put behind the, the ability to be an active participant in whatever you're doing enhances that behavior, enhances what you're doing. And it's the exact same thing for physical activity. You know, when I work with athletes or, or people who are on the uh, more competitive side of what they do one of the things i'm i'm constantly getting people to do on the mindful side f- side is to i mean fitness and sport is so tactile and there's a lot of ways to return to presence through what you feel with your hands whether it's gripping a dumbbell whatever there's all these little touch points if you will that uh, if you start attending to them if you feel yourself drifting off and just going through the motions, you can return to it. And as you say, there's a, a lot of reasons for that, um, just to kind of give up the, the thoughts and maybe they're anxious thoughts that you're rolling around in your head and return to the moment. And that's good in itself. But there's also, it's, it's, there's a connection with productivity and having a more quality exercise experience being, you, know, you could say it's being more productive. So mindfulness is not necessarily just about recovery and relaxation, but there's a link to productivity as well. And I, I talk about it often too, is focus training, right? Mm-hmm. And like, to your point on productivity, if I'm able to notice when my thoughts are wandering and bring it back to the task at hand, that's focus and focus and attention. We're often told to pay attention, but we're very rarely taught how this is teaching you how to pay attention or to focus on your desired activity. So whether that's work, whether that's family, whatever it is. Um, and I think that shift of mindset on what it is helps a lot of people gravitate towards it and understand why you need to practice in order to see results. Now, when we when it comes to launching a book on mindfulness here, and you brought it up a little bit before, and, uh, and you've chosen wine as the medium to, I, I would imagine, teach a little bit of mindfulness for your book launch. Tell us a little bit about how you've organized this. Yeah. So the first part of it, I'm going to introduce some of the science, brain science behind mindfulness and um, some of the pretty easy practices we can integrate 
Uh, and then I paired up with a sommelier from Niagara College who was going to take us through a wine tasting. And what she did is she got she recommended two wines that are pretty much in, sold in every liquor store across the world. So you can pick up and enjoy the wine along with how she's describing it. She's going to have a tasting meal. She's going to draw um, your attention to, you know, all different aspects of the sensory experience of drinking wine. So no, notice, noticing the different notes and the different flavors, but the different smells and where it hits you and where it hits you on your tongue. And like, it's a whole experience if we stop to do it. And what's so great about this activity is it's going to teach you how so that you can do this anytime you're drinking wine um, or anything. So one of the other experiments we're going to do or one of the other practices is actually doing the same thing with a jelly bean. Um, so, you know, being able to capture and enjoy and experience food, we might often miss that experience can go so far. So yeah, that's the virtual wine tasting. I think it's going to be so much fun. Is there going to be a children's book about jelly beans? Just asking for a friend. <laughs> well, there is now <laughs> a jar of mindfulness. What it was. <laughs> yeah, there will be now. Uh, I mean, I'm just saying we're. We're uh, jelly bean fans in this house, and uh, we we jo- it's so funny. We joke that we, we get these ba- these uh, this this bag of jelly beans, and there's these uh, cinnamon beans in there amongst the 500 flavors. And every time we get one, we're just like so angry that that was the one that we got. It's the it's worst. Just, it's the worst, and it just takes over your senses. <laughs> so it's like forced mindfulness in sugar form. <laughs> and I like it's the equivalent to me to thinking you're picking up a chocolate chip cookie and it ends up being raisins. Yeah, so right, disappointing. Right. Another case in point, right there. There's so many opportunities to allow the world and the choices that we make to to uh, to bring us back to presence and to find that part of ourselves more regularly through how we eat, through how we move, through what we drink, and you know, as you've been pointing out all along, the science says the evidence is in and it's growing that doing this is good for us, um, good for our, our, our health, but it's also makes us more productive in the things that matter to us. So a super relevant topic, uh, just in general, a super important topic and even more relevant given the circumstances we're in. And Lisa, I'm, I'm super happy for you in this book. I, I, can't wait for the the launch. Um, I'm going to leave the uh, link to the uh, launch in uh, in the show notes, of course, for for the listeners. And I want to just congratulate you on the work that you're doing, your charity work, which you touched on briefly. We could talk about that, and maybe we'll come back another time and 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 break down some of that work. It was super fascinating and meaningful. And I just want to thank you for sharing your insights. And I wish you luck with the the rest of the uh, the pandemic and and getting this book out there. Thank you so much. And right back at you. Um, Enjoy some of that nature because it's certainly not closed. There goes Dr. Lisa Belanger, poised to launch her new book, A Cup of Mindfulness, this week. It's an online launch, and I know we're all looking for novel ways to spend time at home these days. So why not join in? That link is in the show notes, and uh, so is the link to her book and her social media coordinates. In the meantime, I wish you a week of motivating movement in whatever form that takes these days. I'm hoping to crush some miles out on the trails as the weather warms up and before the bugs get busy. Of course, until next time, stay safe out there 
And here's to living happily ever active. This episode of Happily Ever Active has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more content on the mental side of fitness. Oh, and don't forget to rate and review the show. See you next time.